Thanks so much to DigitalOcean and Accenture.io for sponsoring Does Not Compute. DigitalOcean is the simplest cloud platform to run your applications on, and you can effortlessly scale it as your business grows. There's a powerful administration dashboard to manage all your servers, storage, and networking resources, which work together as an all-in-one solution to help you save time and money scaling your applications. DigitalOcean services have predictable, affordable pricing, so don't muck around with complicated pricing structures that lead to nasty surprises on your monthly invoice. You'll always know exactly what your business is paying for their industry-leading price performance services in their many data centers all over the globe. DigitalOcean droplets are quick to provision. You have a virtual machine running in seconds, and they scale to applications of any size. You can provision one droplet or hundreds. They also offer managed database hosting and spaces, which offers an S3-compatible object storage service at competitive pricing. So, if you're thinking about trying them out, well, we can help. You can get started today with $100 of credit at do.co slash does not. You'll have a real VPS running in just seconds. Again, that's do.co slash does not to receive a credit of $100 towards a flexible and scalable hosting solution for your next application. Hello, what's up, everybody? Uh, today we have a special guest on the show. It's been a while since we had our it's Bucky last guest. It's Bucky. Welcome. Well, Bucky's always here. You just can't hear him. Uh, but yeah, so today <laughs> sometimes you can. Sometimes you can. Uh, but today we have a friend of the show, Dave Lucia, uh, here with us. And um, I'm try. I'm really trying to remember how we met Dave. And all I can piece together was that somehow we started talking in the Elixir Discord or Discord, the Elixir Slack. Uh, I can't remember how that conversation got started or why we kept talking, but it's been like two years, right? I think. I I think we started chatting, and then we just, uh, for some reason, kept having interesting things to talk about. So it's it's been a fun two years, and uh, we finally got to meet about a month ago in person mm-hmm. in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, that was awesome. I really wish I could have been a better tour host than say like, "There's the, there's a big hill. Let's walk up it." Uh, but uh, yeah, so Dave's been writing Elixir since uh, 2016. And uh, he used to actually work at the Outline. I think he was one of the first developers uh, at theoutline.com, which I, w- when I first saw it, I was like, man, the site is really, really cool. The art direction is awesome. And I think one of the first things that jumped out to me was just how snappy and fast the site was. It felt like it, felt like it was nearly instantaneous. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I was the first developer at the Outline. I joined in 2016. And so actually before that, I just want to say, Sean and Rockwell, thank you for having me on and uh, entertaining <laughs> me. I really appreciate it. I don't think it's yet. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, the verbal confrontations are, are ahead of us. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I started at the Outline in 2016 uh, writing Elixir. I kind of actually joined because of Elixir. I was doing uh, Node.js for the past like two-ish years at Bloomberg.com before that and became really fascinated with Elixir. And uh, I knew uh, Josh Topolsky, uh, who is um, a former The Verge fame. He left Bloomberg, actually, to to start the outline. Um, and through that connection, I, I joined and we built... Um, a news website and a content management system and ad platform all in Elixir from the ground up. I got a chance to work with Chris McCord from uh, View Dockyard uh, and I was there for about two and a half years and it was really, uh, really fun experience. Yeah, that does sound, building this stuff from the ground up sounds like a lot of, a lot of fun, like probably a big challenge too, right? But a lot of fun. 
Um, and, and so since then, you're actually at a place called Simple Bet now, right? And uh, this is this was interesting to me because uh, this morning I asked you what you were working on and you you said something to me I didn't know what that meant I had no idea what you were talking about even <laughs> uh, so but that's really cool but yeah so you're working for uh, Simple Bet right now and you're you're a platform architect there that's right yeah so I am platform architect and what that really means is I'm sort of like a project lead um, but cross project uh, right now we're building what we call simple pricing and it's a pricing service and what that means in sports betting is um, let's say you're going to bet on a basketball game and you want to bet on whether uh, you know the Lakers are going to beat the Nets which I don't know if they actually even play because I'm not a basketball fan <laughs> but if you want to bet on the spread uh, we are building a service that uses machine learning to price the odds of, of that market um, so out from my service is a bunch of numbers between zero and one, which represent the probability of one side of the market or the other. That's wild. And do you base it off of, I mean, I guess you have to train it off of existing, I don't know, games or matchups or something somehow, right? Yeah. So uh, we have a pretty massive data science team. And what they do is they pour over uh, years of historical data and they try and find Patterns. I'm sure if a data scientist was hearing me speak, they'd like shudder. But uh, <laughs> they try and find patterns in the data, and then uh, they use that to to build models, uh, which could be used to to price certain markets. Uh, and a market is just anything that you can bet on, right? And the way that we're building this is that we're using Elixir uh, to sort of like use um, as a way to manage state and to manage uh, the life cycle of these events and. Uh, to have incoming data through feeds, and uh, Elixir is really great for that. What Elixir is really bad at is doing the number crunching that machine learning requires, and so for that, we're writing that in Rust. But the really cool thing is that we're leveraging a library called Rustler, uh, which allows you to compile uh, Rust right into the Elixir VM, or the Erlang VM, I should say, the Beam VM. And uh, you can call Rust code as if it's just like a native Elixir function. Oh, that's that's really cool. It's awesome. So at that point, you don't have like externals. You don't have to go through kind of the the cycle of like making a request to a service and getting something back. You can just reach directly to that service from your Elixir service. That's right. And it, it's so fascinating. So, okay, let's say I'm building a library, which is what... Uh, my contribution to uh, simple bet is is you know i'm working with a team of developers and we're building this machine learning uh, library that uses our data science teams models and we write an elixir uh, api interface right and then what we have is we have these just like skeleton functions that are unimplemented and then on the rust side uh, you annotate the names of the functions that you want to implement and you call those Elixir functions just as if they were regular Elixir functions, but behind the scenes, um, that Rust code gets compiled into the to the VM, as I was saying before. Uh, and this is called a native uh, implemented function. Oh, okay. And there's okay. gotcha. And you probably heard of NIFs before, NIFs. Yep. Um, and there's like so many pitfalls and caveats here that you have to be careful with. But if you do it right. Um, you could build a system where all your like performance critical code that really needs that number crunching um, is all implemented in a low level language like C, C++, Rust, um, 
and your Elixir code could just call it transparently. Okay, yeah. So, so when you said NIF, I the only reason I had heard of that before, I think it was because of AppSignal. Uh, in their documentation, they talk about them. Uh, they're basically adding adding their their monitoring services don't add a whole lot of overhead into your stack because they use NIFs to call out the things that are performant. That's all. I didn't really look it up at all. I was like, okay, NIF, that's an interesting word. And then you said it. But as you describe it, it makes total sense now. Yeah. So do you, uh, you're doing this like to improve performance? Like, did you have some previous implementation where it was pure Elixir and you're just rewriting it as NIFs? Or do you know, like from the ground up, like you're going to going to use these native native functions because you need the performance it's a little bit of both so we've built parts of this before in pure elixir and something that might take three seconds four seconds when uh, adding multiplying dividing a bunch of numbers all really quickly uh, could take three uh, milliseconds in rust (laughs) okay (laughs) there you go then (laughs) yeah so there's a lot of pitfalls potentially when you're working with rust nifs or any nif And one of the things you need to be really careful of is that you're not messing with the scheduler. So because you're now outside of Elixir land, you're you're no longer getting your your function calls preempted as the Beam VM typically works. So for those who are not familiar, when you're running any Elixir code, you get a certain number of reductions as your your code is executing in a process. Uh, So let's just say that you have a process, it's a gen server, Um, it's handling some request, um, and then it needs to make a bunch of function calls. Every single function call or uh, like VM instruction, and I'm simplifying here, consumes a certain number of reductions. And once you get to a certain point, uh, the Beam VM scheduler is like, okay, you're spending too much time, and it preempts you. So it puts you at the back of the queue, and then it lets uh, another process work. And what that allows for is it allows that high availability guarantee of the Beam VM, where many processes can all be doing work all at the same time, and no single process can kind of take down the VM. And that's a really important and uh, powerful guarantee of the Beam VM, and uh, something that almost no other platform has. And that actually kind of runs counter to when you're working with NIFs, because the NIFs don't play by those reduction count rules. And so if you have code that's Um, running and executing for a very long time, typically over one millisecond, you can actually mess up the scheduler to the point where um, the the entire system might start acting in a way that's abnormal, ways that it it, it typically... uh, wouldn't work and would work against the availability guarantees of the VM. Yeah, that sounds like... (laughs) That sounds like it would be a lot of fun to kind of test against, right? Like, how would you even... How would you even going about uh, adding adding some sort of test suite for this kind of stuff? So it, it's extre- extremely difficult, and it's not a problem I've had to deal with before. Um, we've tried a bunch of strategies, um, but typically what you want to do is you want to measure the amount of time. Like if you have any long-running task, um, you, you want to measure how much time you've spent. And if it's like approaching a millisecond, you want to yield back to... Uh, the VM. So let's say you have like some really long uh, simulation process. So um, some of the things we do uh, basically reiterate and iterate and iterate. And um, after a certain number of iterations, we check how much time have we spent in Rust. And if we've spent close to a millisecond, we pause, we yield back to the the VM, meaning we like kind of like save our state. And um, 
we yield back to Elixir and then Elixir just recalls our function with our, our last state and it keeps executing until it's complete. And so it's something that you have to kind of like code around. It's not something that's built into the NIF interface, um, but that's been working quite well for us. And we haven't run into any scheduler issues by, by using that approach. You can also access external code using like ports or like basically forking and mm -hmm. calling other processes and opening a channel and communicating with them. Is that something that would also give you some benefit here or is it just the overhead would be too much for these kinds of uh, functions? Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And again, yeah, I think you got to the core of it, which is there. there's trade-offs for all of them. So like, for example, um, I've used ports before when... I think actually for the outline, one of the th cool things that we did is that the the CMS could compile SAS code, so you could write like custom uh, SAS per story, and you could actually like leverage the uh, the SAS code base and all of its utilities right in the story that you're working on. So you can like mm -hmm. write a story that's completely custom uh, design elements. And what we did is we use node sas and we just uh built like an elixir module around it and there's this really nice uh library that i'm blanking on the name of oh it's no goon is part of it um anyways it uses ports and we didn't really care about the speed of that right like it's works on a few milliseconds so who cares but when you're trying to do performance critical stuff uh those milliseconds really do matter and so that's when the the nifs come into play um now th there was something you mentioned or maybe something you're getting at where there's actually some ways where you can have NIFs send messages back, but there's concerns there around, okay, depending on the amount of data you're dealing with, you have to serialize, deserialize data going across the uh, Elixir Rust boundary, and mm -hmm. that takes time too. That makes sense. So there's all, there's all things you have to be mindful of there. Yeah, I guess it really does depend on the application. That's uh, some interesting things to think about there. Yeah, it's a whole uh, interesting world. It's like combining two completely separate worlds with completely different viewpoints on how uh, development works. And combining the two is really interesting. And I think like for what we're building at SimpleBet, um, it's sort of like a match made in heaven because the ergonomics of Elixir are so amazing for doing concurrency and uh, managing state and moving um moving data around but then rust is just so nice for doing low level work uh, i don't know if either of you have ever worked in like c or c plus plus but uh c plus versus rust it's just like day and night rust is, feels like a low level uh, like a high level language um and it's truly incredible like what it's capable of it's kind of like the the way i can picture it in my head is sort of everything that you have Elixir do is basically IO bound, right? It's web requests, it's parallel things, accessing the database, uh, maybe reading from disk or whatever, right? And then everything you have Rust do is CPU bound, right? Because that's what it's good at. It's good at consuming CPU cycles and like doing it in small chunks. And so kind of drawing that boundary there using each the right tool for the job. I think that's, that's, that's pretty cool. And I definitely, uh, I have not played with Rust at all, but... Uh, I've heard I've heard only good things, but it also seems like kind of one of those uh, 
don't want to say cultish, but like <laughs> it has a following for sure. Yeah, I totally know what you mean. Um, I actually started following Rust around the time when it was announced. I don't really remember what that was, maybe like 2012, 2013. It just always sounded interesting because at the time I was uh, writing C++ professionally. And uh, it's just they had a lot of cool ideas, but um, it didn't become stable until I think like, was it last year or two years ago that 1.0 hit? And uh, I was always interested in it when I was at the outline in the context of WebAssembly and what the capabilities were there and just um, some ideas that Ivar uh, Vong and I, the CTO of the outline, had about what can we do with WebAssembly uh, in edge caches and Cloudflare. And it wasn't until I joined SimpleBet that I had an opportunity to, to learn Rust professionally. And boy, is it like a really approachable language. Um, C and C++ relatively are so hard to learn. The resources are just bad, in my opinion. I mean, sure, for C, there's like the C programming language, the famous K&R book. Um, but the C++ books are so dense. And the Rust programming language book written by Steve Klabnik, and I'm not sure if his co-writer, um, is just truly like probably the best programming language book I've ever read. So approachable, really teaches you the core concepts, like really advanced concepts in a really um, uh, empathetic way to people who are not familiar with low-level programming. And I was able to pick it up really quickly and become really productive. I also love the fact that the Rust linter is called Clippy. It's just amazing. <laughs> and it's really good. It's so good. That's Yeah, that's interesting. I think I saw a tweet from you recently where you were talking about uh, Rust documentation and kind of comparing it or contrasting it a little bit to Elixir's documentation. And to me, that's been truly one of the, the things I like most about Elixir. Uh, so I think it was a couple of weekends ago, I jumped back into Ruby a little bit and into Rails. And it was such a big just a big difference I noticed. I spent so much more time looking around for proper documentation or digging through documentation uh, when I was looking at Ruby and Rails as compared to Elixir. I, the the docs seemed so much more... I, I'm trying to put it in a way that doesn't sound like a put-down because I don't mean it like a put-down, but like I'm, I mean it as like a, a compliment to the Elixir community about how much time and, and thought is spent on documentation. Uh, so what's that? What's that been like for you? Because you're... You're doing a lot of Elixir now too, but you're also doing a lot of Rust now. And so you're, you're kind of got both, you know, you got two feet in, in two different ecosystems. Uh, do you find yourself, like you mentioned a couple books already, do you find yourself relying on books a lot or, or more so just on documentation? Yeah, uh, I actually, before I talk about Elixir or Rust, I just want to compare it to other programming languages out there in their documentation. Um, and that's a, like... There's so much for other programming language communities to learn from Elixir and Rust. Um, and it, it, it's very obvious to me that the creators of both Elixir and Rust have uh, really spent a lot of time observing other communities at what they did right and what they did wrong. Specifically, like both Elixir and Rust were heavily influenced by a lot of the really smart choices that the Ruby community made uh, in terms of tooling and documentation and friendliness. Um, and even languages like Elm, who have a very friendly compiler, I think Rust um, was at least partially inspired by or, or, or vice versa. But last summer, I got interested in some uh, just learning more about data science. And so I picked up a course, an online course, uh, where it was taught in Python and you're doing some uh, 
SciPy and uh, NumPy and all those data science-like frameworks that are part of the Python uh, ecosystem. And I don't know where I got this impression, but I always thought that Python had a reputation for really good documentation. And I was actually really disappointed to uh, get into the SciPy documentation and just it be dis- find it so disorganized and uh, just a jumble of words. And what the Elixir community has done so well, and hats off to the Elixir core team, but Elixir's documentation is just unbelievably organized and the way that every single library out there has the same format and it's all pervasive throughout the ecosystem is such an amazing resource and the rust community is exactly the same way now what you asked me like how do i feel like jumping between the two well the rust and elixir ecosystems documentation are both excellent top-notch but what i found really um off-putting at first about the Rust documentation is that they decided to not alphabetize the names of their functions and um, I guess like not just functions but structs and everything that are listed on the left side as like the the toolbar and I thought found that to be a really strange choice that they um, have functions in the order of how they appear in uh, the file and so you'll look at like the VEC module and it'll just be like new and like push at the top, but then it'll just be like really hard to find the function that you're looking for, even if you know the name of it. Um, and that's a, something I think that Elixir did really well is they thought really hard about the the friendliness of a newcomer approaching the language and how they might find something. And it's only getting better. I'm pretty sure that Elixir just added a full text search to their documentation mm-hmm. like a few weeks ago. Yeah, they did. Uh- as far as I've seen right now, you can use that on the Ecto docs, the um, X, X docs, I think as well. Uh, and I think maybe X unit, those are the ones I've used recently where I, I know for a fact that I can play in, play in text search, which is great for me because I have a hard time remembering sometimes exactly like the spelling or, or exactly what a function name is. But if I can string together half of a word from it, it's, it's easy for me to find. And so I found myself relying on an app called Dash quite a bit because it, it sort of just downloads documentation for you in an app and then you can you can basically plain text search that way. And so, or, you know, fuzzy, fuzzy searching basically. Uh, so I use that a lot and now I find myself not using it nearly as much because I spend a lot of my time in the Ecto documentation. Uh, and yeah, it's it's been just a really, really nice quality of life improvement. That's awesome. I tried using Dash a while ago, but I never I got around to paying the license. So it was limited, but yeah, Dash was great. I think I've been using it for just a number of years now. I've had it forever. And uh, yeah, I don't use it a ton, but I don't know, for whatever whatever reason, uh, I just can't seem to memorize the standard library uh, for Elixir. And we haven't like put enough time into it yet, but like actually like memorizing it uh, but that all and also Ecto too. But yeah, I, I've I've always been really impressed with documentation. I think like just being kind of exposed to that really helped me take documentation up another level in the code that I write in for Design Collective. Uh, and that's one one thing that I focus on a lot. And Rockwell and I have been talking recently about kind of treating your future self like a different like a, a whole nother employee in terms of commenting, in terms of uh, writing documentation for yourself. And Elixir kind of really helped me inspire that for me because I felt that's how they were kind of treating it. 
Yeah, one of the things that's... Okay, so I'm going to write this blog post, but approaching Rust from Elixir has been such a wonderful experience because there's so many shared values in the two communities and um, things like first-class documentation are really... It's just like such a wonderful thing. So we're building this machine learning uh, system as I was talking about a simple bit. And one of the things that we're really emphasizing is really strong documentation. And the wonderful thing is that as I'm writing documentation, I just type cargo doc open in the command line and boom, the, the documentation is built and just right in front of my face. And I can skim through all of the, the different modules in my library and read it as if it's a book. Mm-hmm. And it's an incredible resource, especially for new developers who can be onboarded to the project just by reading the documentation of it. And I've never done that before in any project. I think you could probably do that with, with, with um, XDoc right now too, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've never tried it, have you? Uh, I did once a long time ago, and I, I thought to myself, this is cool, and then I closed it. Because <laughs> it was just me at that point, so it wasn't, it didn't really, you know, have a have a need for it, I suppose. But yeah, just approaching, like, just thinking about that as I'm writing, I think, I think helps me on a lot. Uh, so I had another question, too. So I've, like, primarily worked on small dev teams. I think like, the biggest team I've ever worked on was three people, including me. <laughs> And even then we were just on different, because it was a consulting firm. And so we were all working on different projects. Um, and, and so when you say we are building a uh, machine learning uh, system in, in simple bet, what is that? What does that look like? Uh, and I, I guess like, uh, let me kind of annotate that question a little bit more. Uh, so I had another, I just had like a phone call with friend of the show, uh, Brian, and he was mentioning some stuff and I'm really quick to get down on myself for, feeling like I should know something, but I don't. And, and he was quick to like remind me like, yeah, well, I I know this stuff right now, but I also just spent a week learning this stuff. You know, we'd like to take a quick break to tell you a little bit about Sentry.io. Listen, Sentry understands us developers. They know that our code is broken and they just want to help us fix it. Now, in an ideal world, you'd be able to test your code perfectly and cover every edge case. Writing tests, you know, is really difficult, and it's impossible to cover every edge case or anticipate the action of a really smart or a really dumb user. Despite your best laid plans, your code eventually will go belly up. Now, you could rely on error reports from your users, but is that really what you want? It's a frustrating experience, and you're going to end up with incomplete or misleading bug reports. It's going to waste the time of both you, your support, and your development teams. That's why Sentry's here to tell you about errors in your code before your customers even have a chance to see them. The error reports include detailed contextual information to help you reproduce and fix the error, including a full stack trace, the commit where that line of code was checked in, and even the developer to blame for it. You'll get a breadcrumb trail that tracks the user's every action leading up to the error, so you can reproduce it without ever even contacting them. And Sentry integrates with the deployment pipeline to track errors before they make it to production. Sentry has first-party support for both client and server-side platforms, including a couple of DNC favorites, Vue.js, Rails, and even Elixir. So head on over to Sentry.io and give it a try. They have a free developer account, which is perfect for personal projects and early-stage applications. Sentry.io, your code is broken. Let's fix it together. And now back to the show. You guys say you're building a machine learning library, and and you're. Uh, did you say that you're actually leading a team, or you're just part of a team there? 
Yeah, so I'm leading the team that's building the machine learning library. Yeah, so what does that what does that look look like in terms of like how responsibilities are delegated? Do you have people that are sort of like championing or like specializing in certain areas, and everyone comes together and puts the the full picture together? I I really just don't like have any experience in that sort of area. Yeah, so this has been probably the biggest. Um, it's been the biggest team that I've worked in, um, not in terms of like number of people, but in terms of like. Uh, combined effort so the team that's working on the machine learning out a library that uh, i'm the team leader of uh, is about let's see about seven people including myself and what we're building is we're building models that have been built out by our data science team which is comprised of about 20 and 25 people so it's like we're just the dummies that are uh, putting the car <laughs> together but the uh you know these data scientists are brilliant they've uh done uh weeks or months of research you know finding the patterns and data and uh coming up with models and um building out the requirements and the specs for these models and we're sort of uh, carrying them out and bringing them into production so i have been describing this a lot internally but uh i've kind of like conceptually i like to break it down into three phases as to like how uh, data science works uh for what we're doing so there's like this first phase which is research so um let's say you want to build a market for like um a money line market, which is just like, is team A going to win? Is team B going to win? Or is it going to be a tie? And so we'll task uh, our data scientists with like, okay, model that problem. And so the first thing they do is they collect a bunch of data and then they do research on the data and they come up with some baseline models and then they'll benchmark it against uh, historical data and uh, they'll have a bunch of KPIs that come out of that. And if uh, what's coming out of historical data looks good, um, they'll run training on that. And the output of training is um, basically a bunch of numbers. And we can use that output for when we're dealing with live data. So the, the third step is prediction. Um, and when we're talking about prediction in the context of pricing a market or finding the odds of a market live with real-time data, we use that, um, that training output as input along with like the current state of the game. And after you run that through a bunch of prediction functions, um, like a neural net or uh, Bayesian regression, um, there's a number of, of mathematical prediction functions that you can run it through. Um, but the output of that is a distribution. And uh, that's what we use to, to slice up and uh, find the, the probability of a, a certain discrete event. Um, sorry, that was a mouthful. Um, <laughs> but what's really interesting is like the number of people that are needed to make all of that happen. So like the team that I'm leading would be nothing without these data scientists who, again, who have like done all this research and have come up with the requirements. And we're sort of like we have this blueprint and we're we're not just like taking the blueprint and implementing it. Um, we need to productionize it and make sure that it performs so a lot of what we do is to like take the requirements and fine-tune them and make sure that um you know rather than running in a research time frame which could be they can have the luxury of running uh back testing models that take hours uh we need to calculate the pricing in milliseconds um and so there's very different requirements there and so part of our job is to 
sort of understand the intention behind the models that they're building and then translate it into performant code. And that's uh, really hard. Sure, sure. And that's where Rust comes in. That's where NIST come in and all that stuff. That's right. Yeah, that's it. That sounds like a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. Um, and, and to what you were saying before, it's like I didn't, I hadn't written any Rust um, until like two months ago. And it's like, it's amazing. Like all the things I'm saying right now, like two months ago, I would have no idea what I was talking about. Um, and it's just like amazing how you can learn something so quickly. And again, that's a testament to Rust and how great like um, the documentation and the Rust programming language book is. And um, it's just such an accessible language that has so much power. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's really cool to hear you say because things like Rust. Uh, so I have done C plus plus, but on a very very amateur level, and that was a very long time ago. Uh, so when I look at things like Rust or even Go, like Go is pretty simple language, but the idea that it, it seems it has this like association of like a systems programming language to me sounds intimidating. Or like when you say Rust is a low level, uh, you know, language, I'm like, oh, that sounds intimidating because. I know how to make web services and that's it sort of thing, you know? So yeah, it's cool to hear you say things like that because it makes it feel more approachable, approachable to me for sure. Yeah. And I think it's incredibly approachable. Like before I was doing Rust, I was at the outline and, you know, we were building, um, ads and, uh, a new CMS, which is like a completely different problem. And so, I guess I'm trying to say that as a bit of encouragement to anyone else who's like interested in getting into these sorts of things, which is that um, it's easier to learn than you think as long as you're willing to, to put in the time to, um, to learn something completely new. Um, and it's not hard. It just it takes time. Yeah, that's kind of what I tell people that ask me about. I've had actually a few people in the last week ask me about learning to program or technology or like, is it difficult and how long does it take and all that stuff. And usually my answer is it's not difficult. You just have to be willing to stick stick with it. You have to be stubborn in a sense uh, to to push through the frustration or push through confusion. And, and, and basically it's it's like a time game, right? Like if you stick around long enough, eventually it'll it'll uh, the information will stick with you. That's right. Yeah. And I don't mean to be dismissive when I say it's like, it's not hard because that's actually not even truthful. It is hard. Um, and it's, it's definitely not easy by any means, but I mean that like, if you are passionate about it, or at least you're excited and interested. And as you're saying, if you want to stick with it, like it, it can be learned and it's amazing what free resources are available in 2019. And there's so many free uh, learning resources out there that are interactive. that are just incredible for new developers. Yeah. So uh, I have another question for you and it's kind of more about the outline, I suppose, but I've read a few of your like different blog posts or different posts that you've written. uh, And I wanted to ask like, what was, what's maybe like the number one or number two thing that you're, you're most proud of to have worked on with the outline. Is it like building a completely custom CMS? You've done a lot of interesting things. Like you wrote a blog post about um, writing, making a custom Ecto type for Markdown, for example. Uh, And you you mentioned earlier, which I had never, I didn't know that you did this, but you're talking about, you know, compiling uh, SAS right with Elixir. Um, So yeah, maybe like what's one of the number one or number two things that you're most proud to have have worked on there? Uh, When you say worked on, do you mean like uh, things that I developed or just like in general, like what was I excited about at the outline? Uh, Both. Oh man, that's <laughs> um, well, what was so much fun about the outline was just uh, my boss, Ivar Vong, who uh, is the CTO of the outline um, and is now 
VP of Engineering at Bustle. And I'm sorry, Ivar, if you ever do listen to this, but uh, <laughs> I know that's not exactly his title. Uh, but Ivar is just like such a wonderful person to to work with. Um, and he's, he's now like a really close and dear friend of mine. Um, but together, it was really fun for us to um, sort of push the boundaries of what was possible. And so one of the things, I guess in general, the thing that I was most proud of at the outline is how um, we, it's not that we ignored common wisdom, but we sort of threw to the wayside the idea of like, this is how you build a news website. And what I mean by that is, um, most news websites are delivered uh, by CDN and uh, the content is uh, maybe rendered in React, um, which I know a lot of things are moving to uh, client-side uh, single-page app frameworks. Um, but we sort of took a different approach, which is like, what if we server-rendered everything and then like went old school and like sprinkled in some JavaScript on top of it? And so every single um, every single visit to the outline goes straight to the origin server, um, which is backed by like two Heroku uh, dinos. And um, because we server rendered every single page, we could do really interesting things with um, serving ads and um, personalization. And uh, I, we had some very creative and ambitious ideas for what we uh, wanted to do with it ultimately. And I'm sure Ivar is still working on that. Um, but I think the thing I was most proud of is that we just kind of like challenged the norms of like, uh, what was the typical way of building a news website? Um, and because of that, we built really cool things. Like we built our own ad server that it rendered ads on the server. And because of that, you sort of got around a lot of the traditional problems with ad serving around um, ads not showing up quick enough or um, them popping into existence because they're they're being rendered through iframes. Mm -hmm. um, and that posed a lot of unique challenges because now you have to build your own reporting and you need to make sure that it's um, correct. Um, but it allowed us to build, I think, a lot simpler system, but in some ways a lot more interesting system. Um, and it, just one more thing was that like every single user who codes to the outline um, they have a WebSocket connection, and we're just like pushing you new information over that WebSocket connection. And we did that with two Elixir dinos, and it was like we never really had to think that hard about scaling because it always just worked. And we're serving millions of users a month. That's crazy because like the the big thing they always talk about with Elixir and Phoenix is that like it enables you to be productive, but at the same time you get all this performance for free. And the fact that it enabled you to build a product that couldn't really exist without those technologies, uh, you know, in the same way is, uh, is really testament to, to, you know, it really hits home how well that actually works in practice. Yeah, man. And don't be afraid to server render some HTML. It's still cool. I swear. <laughs> it's so cool. Yeah. The, like the fact is like you mentioned how you kind of like threw to the wayside, you know, conventional, like this is how you do, this is like the, the pattern for doing this. Uh, when the first time I saw the outline, it was it was before I, I had talked to you, and that was one of the first things I thought. Like number one was like, "Wow, this is really fast." I wonder how they got this as fast. Number two was, "This does not look like a conventional journalism website at all. There aren't there aren't ads like just these these obtuse ads placed all over the place. You know, it just had a very very different feel to it." Yeah, and that's like that was what's so exciting about it is uh, working with 
with Ivar and um, with our other colleague, Stephen Cronin, who is just like this incredible front end engineer, we were able to just like um, really challenge what was possible. Again, if you've ever been to the outline on mobile, it has this like Snapchat like experience where you can swipe uh, horizontally through stories. And that was all just like uh, part of this JavaScript framework that we built that was relatively simple, but um, would be really hard to build in something like React or any traditional uh, JavaScript framework, just because it's not really built for that sort of pattern. Um, and built like challenging those norms was was very exciting and was a ton of fun, and I loved every minute there. I love how server rendered HTML is challenging the norm these days. <laughs> so what's crazy is that like Phoenix and Elixir, like you can render html in order of microseconds and that's insane like if you tell someone in like ruby or javascript community they're like microseconds like you can't do something in microseconds and it's just like oh that's just what you get out of the box and you don't have to do any uh sort of performance tuning you just get that for free it's amazing yeah that was i say this all the time on this show but it it the old adage is like it's never time like rewriting is never the answer until it is the answer and I think you were one of the people that helped convince me to choose Elixir when I was trying to figure out, like, do I want to, do I want to wade through this 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 soup that I have right now, or do I want to, you know, while I have some time set aside for this, do I want to approach a different a different ecosystem? And and kind of like you said, we have done almost nothing uh, in terms of of trying to milk performance out of stuff. I mean, there's a few things that I've fixed here and there, a few N plus ones or whatever. Um, but really like we haven't even had to think about caching. We haven't had to think about almost anything. And, and our, I want to say that our average response time is, is 50 milliseconds or less right now. And we're running two Heroku dinos. That's so awesome. And yeah, so it could be, it could be faster. Uh, if I spent more time, you know, tearing out preloads and we're, we're slowly moving towards GraphQL, uh, which has been a really huge productive thing for us, especially uh, on the front end, uh, be not having to think in terms of like endpoints and things like that and just getting the data that you need in the shape that you need it. It's been awesome. But also in terms of like adding uh, a library like data loader into the mix was, was a huge win for us. Um, but yes, yeah, aside from that, I haven't really like, done anything and haven't really spun my wheels uh i mean it was like two years and i finally just added an apm so i could start digging into some performance <laughs> stuff well it's so funny it's like oh man 50 milliseconds like we could go faster and it's like who cares like 50 milliseconds no one's gonna notice if it's faster than that and it, i think that's like you just being like it's possible but like i have a, a tab open right now yeah, I, it bounces between 20, the response uh, time mean, it bounces between 25 milliseconds and about 70 milliseconds. That's so fast. It's pretty wild. And we're doing, <laughs> or yeah, like I said, there's a lot of work that can be done to make things better, uh, cleaner. And yeah, it's just something that I've been, you know, it's just a project that has to be ongoing, I suppose, refactoring and making it better as you go. But yeah, I, I guess I just want to say thank you for help helping me learn along the way and giving me confidence to to make that decision and, and uh, kind of pushing me in that direction because I'm really like the more that I try out other, other frameworks or ecosystems, I really do enjoy Elixir. I really, really do enjoy Elixir and I really, really like Ecto a lot. Uh, that makes me uh, 
so excited that I had any part in helping encourage you. So uh, that's awesome. I think you and Rockwell are two like the big, the two biggest people. I think to like push me in that direction, <laughs> which is cool because you're both right here right now. <laughs> well, I'm I'm so glad that we finally got in this virtual room together. Uh, so Rockwell, what, what's been your experience with uh, with Elixir and uh, performance tuning and all of these fun things? Yeah, I mean it's. Um... It's very similar uh, to what you guys have experienced as well. I mean, when I started Remote Ham Radio, it was jQuery on the front end, uh, Ruby on Rails application, and then like a WebSocket thing that I basically built myself, right? (laughs) Because we didn't have channels or whatever. And uh, it was like that for a long time. I mean, uh, I only finally just got rid of the jQuery front end like last week, right? <laughs> now it's all Vue.js and it's awesome. But uh, I replaced, when I learned about Elixir and Phoenix, I think I originally learned about it through uh, the podcast Full Stack Radio. I heard Chris McCord on there and I was like, oh, this sounds cool. And then I read through it and I was like, oh, this is exactly what we're doing. Like real-time messaging, uh, you know, long-lived connections, uh, massive amounts of not massive, but you know, concurrency and parallelism and fault tolerance. Like, what we do is a communication system. It should be as reliable as a phone system is, right? And that's what Erlang was built off of. It just like seemed like too perfect of a fit. And so, uh, you know, rewriting that, replacing basically that WebSockets portion with with pure Elixir and Phoenix code has been it's been great. It's, it's, it allows me to, it's much more maintainable. I can do hot code upgrades so I can literally push bug fixes and nobody gets disconnected, which is awesome. Right. Uh, there's all these, all these benefits of the scaling. Uh, you know, it's, it's really easy to add nodes to the cluster and everything just works. I, uh, I just had, uh, you know, it, it's, it's fit our use case perfectly and, uh, definitely not looking back or regretting it at all. Awesome. I, I've never heard anyone have a bad experience with Elixir and Phoenix, to be honest. And I, I'm probably in a bubble, but um, have you guys heard of people being like, ah, oh, you know, maybe it's not for me? Because I haven't really heard too much of that sentiment. Uh, I, I don't think I have. I saw one guy blow up on Twitter about, at Chris McCord one time about how the tools were crap, but like that was it. <laughs> and that was a few years ago, and things have definitely gotten better. Huh. Yeah, I don't. I I don't think I have. Uh, I I probably am in the bubble for sure, but I don't. I really don't think I have. I, if anything, my only complaint would be ecosystem stuff. But also, I could just pitch in in on that. You know. Yeah, Sean, why are you writing more libraries? Come on. Because I gotta go outside. <laughs> I gotta get sun on my skin, and uh, breathe fresh air and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean that, that's like that'd be the only thing is like, yeah, it's a young ecosystem, but that that's always subject to change over time too. So. Yeah. And I, I mean, Chris McCord, like I thought he was done innovating with, with Phoenix and now live is coming out and there's a lot of excitement around that. And I'm, I'm still waiting to, to try it out, but I'm letting for waiting for it to become, I think it's still an alpha. So let's, let's wait for it to become more stable before I try it out, at least from my opinion, but it, it's a very interesting uh, library. Uh, maybe we should, clarify what live view is for people who don't know yeah i think rockwell i think we've talked about it a few times already or just like just like mentioned it but but yeah basically uh uh what's the terminology i'm looking for yeah it just pushes it just pushes html diffs over a web socket right 
Right. So it's like you can write like a React like application, but from the server side. So yeah. you don't have to write any JavaScript. Yeah. Which yeah. is crazy idea. Yeah, it sounds neat. There's a lot of people doing some pretty wild stuff with it. Um like making games with it, uh making animated fire. Oh, yeah. like, I've seen Flappy Bird, I've yeah. seen Snake, I've seen uh uh breakout. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> all it's server pretty rendered. Yeah. Yeah, so the thing that that concerns me about live view is like okay when it works it works really well but like what happens when you get into um high latency situation so let's say i'm on my mobile device and and like to be clear like this is not the type of application that i think that live view is intended to to build for but like what happens on that boundary where i'm on my phone and i'm uh accessing a web app that's built in live view and then i start to get in a low coverage area and i get really low latency low bandwidth um how do you solve for that degradation degradation experience because um, I, I don't know if if live view is really solved for that yet that's i don't know that's a good question and there was a discussion happening in the general channel of of the elixir slack kind of talking about this about the same thing, kind of comparing and contrasting live view with traditional JavaScript spa apps and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, that's a good question. And also, interestingly enough, some of the demos that I've that I've tried for live view, they've been on like free Heroku servers. So, for example, like if you're playing Breakout, you might hit an arrow and there might be a second. I mean, seconds along, but a few millisecond delay before the piece actually moves on the screen in front of you. Um, so, yeah, like you said, it's probably not the use case that it's meant for. Uh but that seems to be the wow factor demo so far anyway. Yeah, and I think the, what Chris has approached this as is like, okay, this is like a really easy way to add notifications or some like dynamic form to, to your, your yeah. website. And I think people are like, how can we push this to do everything? And that's not really what the problem is trying to solve. And I'm even being unfair by asking this question. But I think it is fair because like, you know, it's a very exciting thing for the community that challenges the norms and... Um, if we people want to put into production, they should understand what its limitations are. Yeah, that's. I think that's a good way to put it. Uh, and really, like, I think the most compelling thing I've heard is people saying, "Yeah, I work on a DevOps team, and we wanted some sort of real time dashboard, and I slapped together a real time dashboard using Live View in a day inside of a day." And to me, that's really compelling because it. They were basically talking about how they didn't have to. They kept the team small. It was just maybe a couple of people. They didn't have to include. Uh, like the front end team and distract them from what they were doing. They were able to put this thing together with the technology they already knew and it was real time and live updating and, and all that stuff. So I think to me, like that's some of the most compelling stuff there is, is it empowers people uh, to get things done within the the confines of what they're comfortable with, I guess. And, you know, that's, that doesn't necessarily mean it fits every situation, like you said, but uh, it's a very, very interesting um, piece of technology either way. But it won't stop people from trying to use it. In yeah, that that's, that's that's true. That's true. <laughs> well, it, uh, I'm really happy that you're able to to join us, Dave. I know we've been talking about this for a while, or you know, you've been hitting me up, so you're like, let me get on that show, or <laughs> you know, like, just let me talk. And uh, and uh, I'm really happy, you know, that you're that you you know that you came around, and uh, we'll definitely have to have you on again because I have many more questions for you, <laughs> especially you know towards the kind of the end of the conversation we were just having. I think we could probably talk for another hour about um, different things like that. Uh, but yeah, I just wanted to say uh, you know formally thank you for helping me uh, introducing me to Elixir and, and thank you for answering my questions and direct messages. And that's kind of one thing I tell people about the technology industry a lot is that you know, help is only a message away. 
Uh, and sometimes it's really intimidating, especially in like a live chat setting. Uh, you know, it's intimidating to just send someone a message and, and be like, hey, I didn't really understand what you meant by this. Can you clarify? And I mean, that's probably how we started talking. I probably DM'd you and was like, help. Uh, you're I, trying to help me. It but, was something along those yeah. lines. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to say thanks for, you know, just being open like that. And because that, to me, that's like, that's how I learned and got into this industry was people answering questions and people helping me when I reached out to them. Um, and yeah, so I'm thankful that you're able to do that. And obviously, you know, Rockwell too, thankful, thankful that he's stuck around and listens to me complain every week <laughs> about, <laughs> about different stuff. But, um, but yeah, so uh, thanks for, thanks for coming onto the show. Yeah. And thank you both of you. This has been so much fun and I would absolutely love to keep talking. I, I think we could probably talk for another two hours if you let me. Um, so thank you so much, Sean. Uh, it has been so much fun. Uh, I think bouncing ideas off of each other for the last, uh, I don't even know. It's been two years, a year and a half, however long we've been chatting for, but, uh, I love, I love, uh, keeping, uh, active in the community and, um, it's really cool to, to meet friends online who you eventually get to meet in person. It's, it's been such a wonderful experience. So thank you. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, I'm excited to, to see, you know, how we grow and learn together in the future. And, um, I'm sure there'll be many more interesting discussions that we have together in the future and, and Rockwell, it's been such a pleasure to meet you. Um, and hopefully yeah, likewise. we'll get to, to chat again in the future. Yeah. I'm, I'm still sorry about that, that terrible, uh, tour of San Francisco you got, <laughs> uh, from uh, me, but it was wonderful. I'm, I'm much, much more, uh, I know more about the city now because I've probably tripled the number of times I've been there since the last time I saw you. <laughs> uh tripled so you went from uh one to to three <laughs> i went from like i went from like three or four to i i don't even know how many times it's I, I go at least a couple of times a week now uh so next time it'll be a little bit better but uh but yeah uh you know just on the point of feedback um my you know my my messages are always open if anyone from the electric slack hears this feel free to message me um and i'll say that for rockwell so you can message rockwell anytime in fact blow him up just talk to him all day long um, he loves talking to people and, uh, you know, we appreciate any, any sort of, uh, feedback anybody has it's questions. I think the last couple of weeks we got some interesting things about, uh, variance performance monitoring tools and Grafana things. So, you know, we appreciate the feedback there and we appreciate the, you know, people that share the show or even just rate us on iTunes. Uh, thank you to everyone who's been doing that. And so Dave, you casually dropped a uh, mention of a blog. You want to tell people where they can, uh, find out about what you're working on and uh, where they can reach you? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, this is a little embarrassing. Uh, my <laughs> AIM screen name from the fifth grade has followed me around up until uh, I'm going to be turning 30 this year. Uh, but I'm DavyDog187 on Twitter. Um, I love it. You could find me on uh, medium.com where I have three, I believe, blog posts at, the, at this time and hopefully one about Rust and Elixir uh, in the, the next few months. Um, actually, I don't know if this is a little early, but I think on the Elixir Alchemy blog, uh, they are going to be republishing my first blog post, uh, Refactoring Elixir for Maintainability. So look out for that in the next few months. Um, and yeah, hit me up on Twitter. And like uh, Sean and Rockwell said, I'm also always open to help when I can. Uh, so hit me up on the Elixir Slack. I, I'll... Uh, 
I'll be as available as I could possibly be. <laughs> and I'm always excited to help. Awesome. You can, uh, as always, you can tweet at the show at DNC show. Sean is Sean Washbot and I am Shrockwell, which was also my own screen name since fifth grade. <laughs> yeah. And uh, as always, show notes will be available at, at uh, dnc.show. Uh, so if you want to see any of the, the things that we talked about today, uh, those will, will be available there. I'll post the show notes and uh, you can have a real-time discussion with us over on spectrum.chat. We've had some good activity over there in the past couple episodes, so come on over and say hi. And as always, thanks to Spec for having us. And uh, we just really appreciate all the stuff they put up with and all of the chopping and slap chopping and editing they have to do uh, on a weekly basis for us. So shout out to Sarah, shout out to Mikhail for, for helping us out with that. If you're interested in other design and programming related uh, shows, head on over to spec.fm and, and check out everything that they have to offer there. They slap chop so much. We should have Vince on the show as a guest. How does that sound? Slap chop. <laughs> this episode of Does Not Compute was edited by Mikhail Delport. Thank God. And produced <laughs> by Sarah Jackson. <laughs> All right, guys, this has been fun. Great chatting with you, Dave. All right. Great chatting with you too, guys. See you guys. Thanks again to DigitalOcean and to Century.io for sponsoring today's episode. DigitalOcean is offering a $100 credit if you sign up at do.co slash does not. And of course, Century.io, as always, has their free no credit card required trial account over at Century.io.